Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. If the 2023 stock market showed anything, it's that you can't predict the stock market. Instead, you need a strategy you can stick with. Art Stein of Arthur Stein Financial joins me now with what the rearview mirror is telling investors. And Art, why don't we begin with your assessment of the past year in terms of the TSP? And I know you don't make predictions, but you know what kind of strategy should people be thinking about? Last year was a very good year, and that was a welcome relief because 2022 was a historically bad year. I mean, not only were stocks down, but bonds were down, you know, in double-digit declines, and it was just, you know, it was very unusual. It was two years in a row of bond declines, which almost never happens. It was the first time the TSP uh, F fund and the stock funds had gone down in the same calendar year. And, you know, just looking at financial markets in general is the first time that anybody can remember, maybe since the Great Depression or something like that. So it was pretty discouraging for investors. Then last year, uh, there are a lot of ups and downs, but especially the last two uh, last two months of the year, uh, everything really jumped, and we ended up, the C fund was up 26%, the S fund 25%, the I fund 18%, and finally the bond funds went up 5.6%, which is a good return for bond funds, and outperformed the G fund uh, for the first time in a long time. So we finally saw what, you know, investors are looking for. And it really benefited people who obviously stayed invested. So if if you were a TSP participant and became discouraged and either pulled out of the stock and the funds and the F fund or whose uh, biweekly investments were not going into those funds, you really lost out. And actually, since the last two months of the year contained all the bond fund gains, all the F fund gains, and a very large proportion of the stock fund gains, you had to be in there for those two months especially. It seems now, like people make the mistake of, you know, if they want to swing around their investments, of taking what's going on in the news and somehow overlaying that with what they think the market will do. And there's been lots of bad news in the last quarter of 2023. The war in the Middle East, the Ukraine situation droning on, the political paralysis in the United States. But the market doesn't necessarily follow those things, which means you're putting yourself in potential danger if you try to beat the market based on the news. Absolutely. And one way to put it, Tom, is the economy is not the stock market and the stock market is not the economy. And one of the reasons that's true is that the stock market is what's called a leading indicator. It tends to go down before the economy starts to decline, and it tends to go up before the economy starts to recover. And so it makes it very hard to time the market based upon what's going on now. And it's one of the reasons why trying to time the market, trying to get in and out of the stock or bond funds based upon what you think is going to happen has really been a losing proposition. Right. Uh, the People the that... better strategy is just to decide what allocation you want between stock funds and bond funds and then invest accordingly and stick to that allocation. 
Yeah, people that have great stories about how they beat the market or time this or that stock sometimes remind me of people who went to Las Vegas and came back. And they never tell you about the losses. They only tell you about how they could do no wrong at the crap tables or something. And you would think that you actually could have a chance of winning at the long term in Las Vegas, which nobody does. Yeah, and there's actually an academic term for this. It's called recency bias, that we tend to think that whatever has happened recently is going to happen in the future because it's, you know, what we remember most closely. We're speaking with Art Stein, certified financial planner with Arthur Stein Financial in Bethesda, Maryland. And so looking ahead to 2024, people are, you know, we're here already and the same wars are going on, the same political paralysis is in the country. And so, you know, the underlying situation hasn't changed because the calendar turned over. So what are you advising people with respect to thinking about strategy for the coming year? Okay, well, first of all, we have to remember that there is a lot of good news about the economy. Employment's remained very strong, and interest rates have come down a little bit. Inflation has certainly come down, and uh, you know, economic growth has continued. So the, our economy continues to do well. You know, the general forecast for last year was that there would clearly be a recession. I mean, that was just, you know, most people who forecasted, that's what they were forecasting. And now I'm seeing the same forecast. So the people keep forecasting a recession, and eventually they're going to be correct. Maybe not this year, maybe it'd be 10 years from now, but, and then they will be crowned the king of four, a queen, king or queen of forecasting, because they got it right. I think a key thing for people to do in the early part of the year, it's a great time to review your financial situation and see where you are and whether you are uh, on the right path. So, of course, you want to look at your TSP allocation uh, with all the ups and downs. I mean, is the allocation what you want? And if not, you can rebalance employees, uh, of course, want to look at the uh, allocation of their biweekly investments, which, you know, can be very different than their current allocation. And one thing we often recommend is that your biweekly investments can be much more aggressive than your current allocation because that you just have smaller amounts going in every two weeks. And if the markets go down, uh, that's good for you at that point because you are buying low. Then another question you need to ask yourself is, do you want to be in the Roth TSP or do you want your money in a Roth IRA? You know, the whole Roth question. So uh, current participants, employees, have the choice of their contributions going either into the regular TSP or a Roth TSP or the Roth TSP. And the major difference is that the money you put in the regular TSP, whatever you put in reduces your taxable income by the same amount for that year. So if you put in 10000 in the TSP, you're going to reduce your taxable income $10,000. Now, of course, when you take that money out, it's fully taxable. With a Roth, The money that you put in does not reduce your taxable income. But when you take it out, there's no tax on the withdrawals. So you're foregoing a um, 
tax deduction on a smaller amount for a tax-free withdrawal and hopefully a much larger amount in the future. One downside of that is that for employees, the reduction in, because there's no tax break on contributions, your taxable income is going to be higher. And you want to make sure that you can afford that. Now, you can split up, you know, so that some of your uh, contribution goes to the Roth and some to the regular, but people need to look at that. And there are a lot of advantages to a Roth account. For retirees, they can decide to do what's called a Roth conversion. So they can take money out of an IRA and put it in a Roth IRA and but then it's uh, the amount they transfer is fully taxable at the time. That's a much more difficult decision and re, uh, requires a lot of planning. And it's very, whether it's a good idea or not, depends upon one's personal situation. Right. So in deciding, though, Roth or regular TSP 401k style, you have to understand or you have to kind of have an anticipation of what your tax rate will be when you withdraw presuming that it's going to be lower. And if you get some great private sector job where your salary triples when you you turn, you know, and you're still working at the age of the minimum withdrawal, then you might have a higher tax than you would have if you'd done the Roth years earlier. Absolutely. See, the, especially with the Roth conversion, you have to look at, one, how long do you think the money is going to be invested in the Roth? And, you know, if you're 85 years old, a Roth conversion makes less sense than if you're a 35-year-old employee. And it also makes a difference how aggressively you're investing. You know, if all the money's going in the G fund, it really doesn't make much of a difference. But if you're an aggressive investor, you're putting a lot of money into stocks, into the stock funds, CS&I, and you expect those to grow very rapidly, then it makes more sense. Now, those are not the other variables. Another way to look at that is that if you think that your tax rate's going to be lower when you withdraw the money, then just in terms of doing the calculations, a Roth conversion doesn't make as much sense. But we have to look at the fact that, you know, taxes may be higher in the future because we're running huge deficits. All right. So have a plan, have a strategy, don't time the market and some eternal truths, you might say. Yeah. Uh, Another thing to look at is life insurance. And I find many people are underinsured, especially if you are, for instance, married, you have kids and only one spouse works. You need a lot of life insurance on that spouse. Like 10 times salary is not too much. And for a healthy person, they need to compare what it costs for Fegley Uh, the federal government life insurance uh, group policy with what they can get in the private sector and healthy feds are going to probably find that the private sector policies are cheaper and no reason not to get them. Uh, I would say that everyone should calculate their net worth every year. It's value of everything you own minus your debts. And that should be going up every year. If it's not, it's a real warning signal. Now, if you're retired and you're older, you you don't expect to see that increase in net worth, perhaps, but it's still nice if it happens. So life insurance, calculate net worth. Again, an area where I see a lot of mistakes being made is 
in homeowners and auto insurance because many people do not have enough liability insurance. And this is if you have an accident, you're at fault, you get sued, or if someone's at your house and they fall or slip and they're seriously injured and they sue you, how much is your insurance actually going to cover? And what you're going to find is that for most people, it's going to be somewhere around a hundred to maybe $500,000. And so think of it, you know, like you have someone over to your house, your kids have friends over, some kid falls down the stairs, can't walk for the rest of her life. Uh, you could easily get sued and lose a million or $2 million lawsuit. And your uh, homeowner's insurance is going to say, great, we'll cover that up to $250,000. And the rest of it, that's on you. Well, you don't want to be in that situation. You want to look at what's called umbrella liability insurance, which is sold in million-dollar increments to cover that excess liability in home and auto. And one of the great things about umbrella liability insurance is it's very cheap. Like I'd say most people can get a million dollars covering auto and home of umbrella coverage for about six, $800 a year. Well, why not have the extra coverage for that? Okay. And then finally, make sure you have emergency funds sufficient to cover you for two, three, four, five, six months of expenses, especially for feds who are working, but even for retirees, you know, if the government closes down, we could be in a situation again where salaries are not being paid. And it even, it would be pretty extreme, but, you know, maybe uh, annuities are not being paid either. And uh, people should be prepared for that. So beginning of the year, it's a great time to review your situation make some decisions, and do that every year. Certified financial planner Art Stein of Arthur Stein Financial. As always, thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected. 
and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective. We get those different ideas and experiences And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're we're going through a a culture project at our work. Oh, great. It's it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training and what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply That's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, 
This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision, and it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture 
because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. 
your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.